as we pick up where we left off a couple of weeks back, Amy and I had a good chance to catch a break over this past week. Appreciate Keith Richardson so much for stepping in and using his gifts to, to keep you all well fed in our absence. Um, but today we're back in Luke, and actually the kids were picking around with me a little bit on the trip, and they've gotten this impression that we're never going to leave the book of Luke. I mean, we've been preaching through Luke for a year and a half now. We're, you know, getting close to the end of chapter 12. There's a good number of chapters left to go. And so my kids started saying that one day, like, I'm going to step up here at 90 years old, all hunched over, and I'm going to say, all right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke. And that's become a running joke with him. And even the youngest of them has gotten in on the act, and and he had a little bit to say. And he said, Daddy's going to be in heaven, and he's going to be like, open your Bibles to the book of Luke. (coughs) But there's some rich nourishment in what Christ is teaching us, looking at the life of Christ. So we're excited to be back in the book of Luke today. And I'm going to share with you a message I've titled, He is Coming. Are you ready? In my career as a software engineer, I've worked for a variety of companies. Some of them have been big companies, and others of them have been pretty small companies. My second job out of college, though, was one uh, with, with one of the largest banks in the world. And I worked in a call center out of Greensboro. I developed various applications supporting individuals who were on the phones with individuals kind of doing the business of this bank. And while I was at this large facility there in Greensboro, even though that was large, because this was a part of such a large corporation, there was nobody there in that local office who was at an executive level with Bank of America. But on occasion, we would have a town hall meeting or we would have some other sort of opportunity where an executive from the company would come into town to visit our office. And when the executives came into town... Everyone cleaned up their act. Weeks before an executive was scheduled to arrive, we would receive word that we needed to clean up our workspaces and our desks and our cubicles. While there were some days that we could dress in jeans, executive visits mandated that everyone would wear more formal attire for their visits. And as the executives headed into town, broken furniture was replaced Wilted plants were revived. New signage was erected, all with the nice corporate theme. All of this was an effort to convince the visiting executives that we, the employees of the company, had the best interests of the company in mind and that we were busy about the company's business. I do sometimes wonder what those executives would have encountered if they had arrived unannounced. You know, CBS has run a long-running show titled Undercover Boss, which explores this very idea. And while I must confess that I do not watch the show, and I've only seen a few clips of this show in the past, the premise is a pretty good one. CBS describes the show in this way. High-level corporate execs leave the comfort of their offices and secretly take low-level jobs within the companies their own companies, to find out how things really work and what their employees truly think of them. This Emmy-winning reality series utilizes hidden cameras to provide an authentic view of executives' journeys as they are immersed in the day-to-day operations of their organizations. In the process of this undercover mission, executives learn of the perceptions about their companies, the spirit of their workforces, 
and maybe something about themselves as well. It's just a sampling of what has been discovered through this process of introducing executives with hidden cameras at the lower levels of their own companies. In a 2012 episode, Rick Silva, who is the CEO of Checkers and Rally's fast food chain, pretended to be a regular employee at a Florida location that he presides over. And as he went about his work, he witnessed the location's new general manager repeatedly verbally abusing his staff. And so Silva tried to talk to the manager. And the manager said, I came into this company just like you, wanting to be nice and low tone. But the manager told the unknown CEO, it doesn't work. If I don't scream at them, they don't listen to me. And furthermore, the manager demanded to know why Silva thought he had the authority to tell him that he was disrespecting his employees. Well, Silva revealed in that episode the shocking truth to the abusive manager saying, I have been in the restaurant business for over 20 years. I am the CEO of this company. I know exactly what it takes to run a restaurant like this. And guess what? I know the right way to do it. And I know the wrong way to do it. Right here, right now, we're going to shut this restaurant down. And that restaurant did, in fact, shut down. Sure enough, it opened the next day with a new manager. Now, some of you might giggle to think of what it might be like if your own boss showed up at your workplace unexpectedly. But what if your boss had the authority not just to shut the company down, but to either grant you eternal blessings Or to cast you into hell? Well, I suspect that piece of the equation would change your perspective and your preparations when it came to this boss visiting just a little bit. And as we resume our study through the book of of Luke today, we're going to find that all of us does have a boss like that. And he has announced that he is coming at a time when we do not expect For the Lord Jesus makes it clear that he will come one day soon and he will appear and he will call those who have been entrusted with his gifts and his business to account for what they have been doing. His coming is sure, but his timing is unknown. And whether you face him at the unexpected hour of his return or at the unexpected hour of your own death, you must know this, Jesus is coming And so I ask, are you ready for his coming? Let's join together now in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35, as we read the master's words on how we ought to be ready for his coming. If you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand, that we might honor together the reading of God's word. Again, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third, And finds them so. Blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this. 
that if the head of the house had known at the hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him to a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but a few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. Here ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. These words we've just read are part of an ongoing sermon from Jesus that's being delivered somewhere on his way to Jerusalem. He started preaching back at the beginning of chapter 12 after he'd left the home of a Pharisee, having called this Pharisee out for ultimately cleaning the outside of the dish, but on the inside being filthy in hypocrisy. And so his discourse, of course, began dealing with the issue of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And then he dealt with greed. And then he dealt with worry. And he dealt with charity and giving charitably. And in today's passage, he gives us a clear reason why we ought not be hypocritical or greedy or wanting more and more and more of the things of this world why we ought not worry over the things that this world throws our way and why we ought to be generous with the things we've been entrusted with here on this earth it all boils down to this one reality the hope of the christian is the hope that jesus is coming again the only hope that any man could have that endures for all of eternity is not bound up in the things of this world. It's not bound up in the things that we could be greedy over or that we could worry about or that we could hold to ourselves in a selfish sort of manner. The only hope that endures is the hope that Jesus is coming again. All of our hope for all of eternity is bound up in his coming again. That's what he says in verse 40. Be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, if you're new to Christianity, this sort of concept of Jesus coming again might be a confusing one to you. Why would Jesus, I mean, he's here in what we're reading in the midst of the people. He's obviously come to the earth in his incarnation and he's preaching to them. Had Jesus not already come to his people? Well, yes, he had. In the incarnation, Christ took on flesh. He came to his people. He dwelt among them. He bore their sorrows. He was acquainted with their griefs. And here in this sermon, he was in the midst of what we would refer to as Christians as his first coming. 
But Jesus was crucified, and Jesus was buried, and Jesus arose again from the dead, and Jesus appeared to thousands of followers as an authentication of the reality that he had won the battle over sin and over death. And then he sent his disciples out to make this good news known, the good news of his victory, the good news of a kingdom. These things are what we as the church are called to make known. And after Jesus commissioned his church for this very work, he ascended back into heaven. But over and over and over again in his earthly ministry and through his individuals, his apostles, through whom he has inspired the word that we read in the New Testament, over and over again, even in the Old Testament, as the prophets spoke of this one who was to come, we see this continuous testimony that Jesus would return. That his first coming was not his only coming. And so that's why we Christians speak of Jesus' second coming. Here's how Jesus spoke of his own return in John chapter 14. He said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You see, Jesus is coming again for his followers, his prize, his bride, the church of the redeemed. He's calling to call those of us who've entrusted our lives to Christ to himself. And while you can and while you should study the scriptures and learn the signs and the wonders of this great sequence of events as God will ultimately bring about the end of the world as we know it, as God will ultimately institute his kingdom on earth, while you ought to study these things and look for these signs, there is no reason for any of us to expect anything other than the reality that Jesus could appear, could appear at any moment to snatch away his bride. The scriptures give us nothing that says that we need to wait for anything else to happen in God's cosmic timeline before he would take his own away to himself. And we refer to the event of Jesus taking his bride, taking those who are believers in him, taking the faithful followers of him to himself. We refer to that as the rapture. That's a word that comes from the Greek word rapturo, which means ultimately to snatch away. Paul talks about that great doctrine in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, also in 1 Corinthians 4. Just listen to God's words through the apostle in the latter of those two places. Starting in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. There's that word rapture. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This is the Christian hope. This is what we stake our eternity on. That Christ is coming again. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus 
will return. If our hopes are fixed on anything less than the truth that Jesus is coming again, if our hopes lead us to greed or to worry over the temporary things of this world, then our hopes are ultimately selling us short of this great reality. He is coming. Are you ready? And Jesus makes it clear that we all need to be ready for Christ's return. In fact, I want to share with you from this passage we've read today four reasons why you need to be ready for Christ's return. Here's the first one. Christ commands you to be ready for his return. That's how he begins his preaching in this important topic in verse 35. Jesus simply commands, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. The first part of that command, translated, be dressed in readiness, in the original Greek literally means gird up your loins. Now, now the individuals in Jesus' day would wear these flowing sort of robes. And so if you wanted to be ready for action, where we get this translated translation of dressed in readiness, if you wanted to be ready to move, I don't know how many of you have ever tried to run in a dress. I will not say that I have. But I have tried to run in a, in a robe, and I know that that can really hinder you. So what individuals would do, they would take the corners of that, and they would pull them up, and they would put them under a girdle. They would gird themselves and put their, gird their robes so that they then essentially were wearing shorts. Their legs were free to move about. And so anytime an individual was going to get involved in work or running or participating in warfare, that individual would gird up his loins in such a way that he was then ready to move. Once that individual is free from movement, then he goes about doing the work that was appropriate for that hour. And so hence we have the translation here in the New American Standard of being dressed in readiness. That is, if Jesus is coming again, if he's moving back to earth to call forth his own, then his followers need to be prepared to move with him. This is a call to salvation. This is a call to be saved. As we've already read, when Jesus returns, he's going to take his own with him. Those who've entrusted their lives to him as Savior and Lord will move with him. They'll be ready to move because they placed their faith in him. This is a call for us to trust in Jesus. Jesus is calling for those who hear his voice to prepare for his return by being ready to move with him. And that preparedness comes by trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Jesus also commands in verse 35 to keep your lamps lit. Now, a lamp that is lit casts away darkness. And so there's a further instruction on how we ought to be prepared for Christ's return in this analogy, which is that we must be continually evaluating, continually identifying, continually casting out the darkness in our lives. This is a call to sanctification, a call to grow in the likeness of Christ. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. When we dwell in the things that are contrary to God's design, when we worry, when we're greedy, when we live our lives for our own ends rather than for his glory, we are dwelling in darkness. We aren't keeping our lamps lit. And if we truly want to be prepared for our Savior's return, then we must keep our lamps lit and drive the darkness away. And so the first reason you need to be ready for Christ's return is that Christ commands you to be ready for his return. Here's the second. Christ will bless you if you are ready when he returns. Jesus pieces together a few small parables in a row here in Luke chapter 12 to illustrate the importance 
of being ready for his return. In verses 36 to 38, he gives us a parable of a wealthy master who obviously is wealthy because he has servants, he has slaves who care for his household. And this wealthy master is returning from a wedding feast. Now, Jewish weddings were typically held at night. And as a matter of fact, they would typically be long affairs, sometimes extending up to seven days. And so you can imagine what it would be like to be on the other end of managing a household where your, where your master has gone away. This is a day before cell phones. This was a day before text messaging. This was a day before social media. And so an individual who would go away in a situation like that would come back unannounced. There was no way for him to announce his return, to tell others to prepare, to be at the door, to be waiting. So a man who went away had no way to communicate. And if it was late and the doors were locked and the master had been gone for a day or more with nobody knowing precisely when he would return or where he was at, we might expect those servants to be in the bed. But that's not what happens in this parable that Jesus gives us. The slaves of this master's household could have gone to bed, but they instead chose to be on the alert. They chose to be waiting for their master when he returned. The master comes and he knocks, and Jesus says in verse 36 that these men, with a right attitude about how to be ready for their master's return, are ready to immediately open the door when he comes and knocks. Now, the hour of the day made no difference for these slaves. Jesus actually says in verse 38, whether the master comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them on the alert when he comes, blessed are those slaves. These slaves would have ultimately divided their work into three or four watches, and that second and third watch of the day would have spanned from about 9 p.m. at night to about 3 a.m. in the morning. Jesus says, whether the master comes even in the darkness in the middle of the night, these slaves are ready to open the door when their master knocks. We're talking about the master returning very late in the middle of the night, and yet these servants were always ready. They were ready in an instant. Their master didn't have to knock and knock and knock while they rolled out of bed. He didn't have to wait while they cleaned up the mess from the party the day before. They were watching for him. They were longing for him. They were ready for him. And that's the way we ought to live when it comes to Jesus' return. We ought to be ready. We ought to be longing for his return. We ought to be like a little faithful puppy dog waiting by the door for his master to come home. Our love for our master ought to cause us to long to see him, to be ready and excited and energetic about meeting him. A few years ago, I was admitted to the hospital for a few weeks. And I'm not going to go into the details of my malady or how God brought me about what seemed to be such a miraculous healing through that experience. But there was one part of the experience that I want to hone in on. Through my hospitalization, I saw a reminder of what I already know, which is that God has given me a wonderful wife, far greater than I could ever deserve. What I remembered about that experience is that while I was away from home, my wife longed for me to return. She stayed with me there in the hospital for a few nights, but ultimately our kids needed her at home also. And so when she did go home, she refused to sleep in our own bed. 
She was constantly reaching out to me. She said that sleeping in her own bed just didn't feel right without me there. She longed for me to return. She stayed on the couch. She rose early to visit me before she went to work. It was as if through the third and the fourth watches of the night, she was waiting for my return. Now suppose Jesus came knocking at your door today. Would you be ready for him? Would you have for him a love that would cause you to be glad about this reunion of him coming to you where you were? If he calls you to himself on this day through your own earthly physical death, are you immediately prepared to meet him face to face? If Jesus came knocking on the door of your home, would you, would you keep him waiting while you hid away the things that you knew he wouldn't approve of before you opened the door? What, what if Jesus came to examine your heart? Are the roots of greed and bitterness or lust or unforgiveness or worry? Are there roots of that manner that are in your heart that you would want to clean up before his inspection came? If so, then you're not ready. You're not like those faithful slaves who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. But if you are ready, you can expect an eternal blessing. For we read in this small parable that when the master finds his slaves waiting to immediately open the door for him, he does a shocking sort of thing for a master-slave sort of relationship. He blesses his slaves with a shocking sort of blessing. Verse 37 says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I will say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. What's going on here? I mean, the servants have ultimately found delight in being ready for their master. And when he returns, he finds delight in their own readiness. And so he chooses to serve them. Now, Jesus, let's just be clear, is referring to his second coming. He's referring to his return. And if the idea of a master waiting on his slave wasn't shocking enough for all of us, hear this. Jesus is teaching us that he, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is coming again. And the servants that he finds joyfully waiting for his return will be blessed by him at his return. He himself will gird himself to serve and he'll have those faithful servants to recline at the table. And he will come up as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will wait on those servants. You know, when I first came home from the hospital to my waiting bride, my first inclination was not to tell her, woman, go make me some dinner. That would have been a pretty foolish sort of thing to say to one who had been so faithfully and lovingly waiting for my return. No, my response was to rejoice into her company, was to celebrate what a wonderful woman I have in her. And Jesus is going to do the same thing for his bride, my friends, the church, when he finds her longing for his return and rejoicing in his coming. And it's astonishing to me that Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will himself not only share in the wedding feast of the redeemed, which he is preparing for us, but he will actually serve those whom he has saved. What a wonderful God we have. 
What kind of master girds himself to serve his slaves? Indeed, what kind of God humbles himself to face death on a cross so that others might live? I'll tell you what kind of God. It's the God named Jehovah. It's the God named Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God. This is the God who is full of mercy and grace. This is the God who works abundantly so that he might give to others his generosity. This is the God who extends to you eternal life, not based on your merits, but based on his sacrifice. This is our God, my friends. And we have much to rejoice in because he desires to bless. It is a very essential element of his nature that he extends grace to the undeserving. And I praise God. This is the nature of the one who has called me to himself. The second reason why you need to be ready for Christ's return is that Christ will bless you if you're ready when he returns. Here's the third. Christ will return at a time you would not expect. That's the point Jesus drives home in verses 39 and 40. As he draws the analogy of a thief, he says, if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, you can be sure that he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And surely that's true. But the funny thing about thieves is this. They don't make appointments with their victims. I mean, can you imagine sitting around your home one day and somebody calls up and says, hey, I'm going to break into your house tomorrow about 2 o'clock. Is that all right with you? Not going to be a very effective strategy, right? I mean, you're either going to have the, the sheriff sitting there with you or you're going to maybe, you know, have your own metal sheriff waiting with you, right? There's going to be some way you're going to be prepared to respond. And thieves do not work in making appointments. Thieves come unexpectedly. They don't announce when they're coming. They come when everyone's sleeping. They come when nobody's watching. They come when you least expect them. And Jesus says that his coming is going to be like that. In verse 40, he says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour. You do not expect. That title, the Son of Man, that's a title that has messianic implications. It, it shows that he's the Messiah. He's owned that title over and over again in the book of Luke. In his ministry, it was one of his favorite titles he used to refer to himself. It's a title that has ties back to Daniel chapter 7 where we see the Messiah referred to as the Son of Man. It, it, it signifies Jesus' humanity in that he in, did indeed take on full human flesh, but it also identifies him as the one who came to reconcile humanity to God. And so Jesus uses this title to identify himself, and he says that the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect, like a thief. That's an analogy that Jesus and the other divinely inspired authors of the New Testament used often. Jesus ultimately uses this title for himself, even in the book of Revelation, as he talks about how he's coming to the churches like a thief in the night. Jesus is coming. What he wants us to understand, what the biblical authors want to understand, his coming is going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be a surprise. It's going to be unexpected. He's not going to make an appointment. It could happen at any moment. Now, there's a tendency for those who know that this has been what we've been preaching in the church for over 2,000 years to, to chalk all of this up to just a good bit of Christian manipulation. I mean, people have been preparing for Jesus' return for millennia now. 
Why should I prepare when the preparations did them no good? Well, I would argue, first of all, that the preparations did do them some good if they were prepared. But here's the reality. Jesus is coming. Whether he has not come in the last 2,000 years or whether he has, the, the reality remains the truth of the Bible that Jesus is coming. And an hour that you do not expect If he doesn't come to rapture you as his bride in your own lifetime, you may have an unexpected time to meet him of your own. Who knows if a car wreck or a brain aneurysm might take down any of us before the end of this very day. Jesus told earlier in Luke chapter 12 of a man who stored up riches for what he thought would be many years to come so that he could take his ease, so that he could eat, drink, and be merry. He thought he had it all made for years to come. But God called that man a fool. And he demanded his life immediately. It was unexpected. And I don't care how many years have passed since Christ ascended into heaven. You can take it to to your bank. That ultimately Jesus is coming at a time you do not expect. Peter had these words for those who scoffed at Jesus' delay in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. Hear these words. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day the lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance but the day of the lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? You see, friends, what seems like slowness to you and me is really just God's gracious patience toward all of us. But the thief-like moment is still coming. And in that moment, the only true robber of anything that will be eternally lasting will be the robber of the blessings on that day that you yourself will be if you do not receive his grace in preparation for that event. You see, God has richly granted Christ so that you could be redeemed. If you reject him, you're the only one who's going to be the thief. You're going to steal away the opportunity that God has given you in your own obstinance. And friends, I hope... You're not going to thieve yourselves in this way. God's patience will not extend forever. The surprise of his return will come about. So look for the day and be prepared. I heard about an elementary school guidance counselor who visited one of her classrooms in her school one day. And she told the class that gathered there in that classroom that she was going to come back one day in the coming weeks and that when she did, she was going to give a prize to the student whose desk was the cleanest when she came back. Now, the children were excited about the prize, naturally, but they wanted to take the easy road, so they began to ask a question to the counselor. Tell us, when are you coming back? When do we need to be ready? She said, well, I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming back. It's going to be a surprise inspection. Well, there was a little boy in the class whose desk had always been a mess. But just after the guidance counselor left, he declared, I'm going to win that prize. 
Well, of course, his classmates all laughed at him and said, you've got the worst desk of all of us. How, how do you think you're going to win a prize for the cleanest desk? Well, the boy had a plan. And so he said, I'm going to start cleaning my desk as soon as I get to school every Monday. One of his buddies chuckled and said, well, well what if she comes on a Friday? Then your desk is just going to be a mess again. Well, the boy thought for a moment. He said, well, in that case, I'm just going to start cleaning my desk every morning. Well, that same friend said, that still won't work. What if the guidance counselor comes at the end of the day? Well, the boy put a little bit more thought in and finally had a solution that would work. He said, in that case, I know what I'll do. I'll just keep my desk clean. And that's readiness, my friends. Readiness says, I'm just going to stay ready. I'm just going to get my affairs in order. I'm just going to trust Christ and pursue him and be glad when he appears because I'm casting out darkness. I'm dressed in readiness. And the third reason why you need to be ready for Christ's return is that Christ will bless you if you're ready when he returns. The fourth reason is that Christ will hold you accountable when he returns. Now, time won't allow for me to go as deep into this last section as I'd like, but in verses 41 to 48, Peter wants to know who Jesus is addressing with this parable about the slave who ought to be ready for his master's return. So he says in verse 41, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And Jesus answers Peter with another parable. It's a parable that ultimately talks about two different kinds of individuals. One of them, well, they've both been put in charge of the master's estate while the master is away. But one of them is found to be by the master, doing what the master has commanded. And according to verse 43, that servant, that slave is blessed. In fact, that servant is put in charge of all of his master's possessions. And we've already talked about the blessings of those who are ready for Christ's return. But the blessing is magnified even more here. In that not only will God bless those who are faithfully waiting for him. We read in these verses that he gives that servant authority over all of his possessions. He puts him in charge of all of his possessions. And so we who await Christ, when we are found faithful at his return, will be blessed to be able to reign with him over all things. It's an opportunity for co-regency with Christ. But there's another sort of slave in verse 45. It's a slave who says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming. And because the slave doesn't expect his master to return anytime soon, that slave sees an opportunity to indulge himself with his master's things. So he begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. And that slave thinks he's making the most of his opportunity, but in the end, his master cuts him into pieces and assigns him to a place with unbelievers. You see, that slave wasn't ready. He wasn't prepared. And God holds him accountable by throwing him into the place of unbelievers. He holds him accountable by throwing this wicked servant into hell. Now, I just want to clarify here that ultimately this is not a matter of a servant who has already entrusted his life to Christ and who is judged by his works. We are not judged by our works. We're judged by the only work that ever matters, and that is that Christ died and bore the penalty for our sins. But there is a reality. There is an expectation that's clear in the biblical text. 
that if you've entrusted your life to Christ, if he truly is the Lord of your life, then that's going to make a difference in how you live. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, then you're not going to go around abusing others and feeling no remorse and feeling no opportunity or no desire to repent of that and to grow and to be sanctified. And so if that's you, if you're living a sort of life where you say, well, I prayed a prayer or I walked an aisle or I went through some ritual in the past, but my life is now far from God and I don't feel any guilt of conscience over that, then I want to tell you to be very careful where you are. Be very careful in your evaluation of your own heart because it is not the deeds of our past that make a difference. It is ultimately Christ's righteousness, our entrusting ourselves to his lordship. And if he is Lord of our lives, then we are not going to be comfortable living in such a way that is disobedient to his command. And so this wicked slave, this one who maybe thought that he was serving in the master's house, finds that that's not actually the case. When the master comes home and ultimately dismembers him, divides him in two, and casts him into a place of the unbelievers likewise there are two other slaves that are mentioned here not only is there this aggressively disobedient slave who spit in the face of his master's plans there's also a slave in verse 47 who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his master's will this one faces the judgment of his master as well but his judgment if you might notice is less severe he's not torn into pieces No, instead, he receives many lashes. And then in verse 48, there's yet another slave who didn't do his master's will, and he too committed deeds worthy of a flogging. But that one did not know his master's will. And so, not knowing his master's will, he received but a few. What's going on here, you might ask? Well, all of these individuals are disciplined when the master comes. All of these individuals find that they are not Blessed, as Jesus has talked about blessing in the other categories here before. And so I believe that this is evidence of different individuals at different states who ultimately are apart from God. Now there was one who was placed in charge of these things. There was one who was in a leadership sort of position. And he abused the servants. He took things for himself. This one receives the greatest punishment. There's another who knew his will but not, did not act in accord with his will. You can think of any individual who might receive the gospel, might hear the truth, and not respond to that truth. And that one receives many lashes. You've got yet another who did not know his master's will but still did things that were worthy of a lashing. And so he receives a lashing. What I believe we see here, my friends, is evidence that there are going to be different degrees of torment in hell but none of those degrees of torment is going to be anything like the blessing of the master when he comes and finds those who are faithfully prepared have their loins girded up who are ready for their master to return and so it may be true that Hitler faces greater uh, torment in hell than, than one who lived in a place where he ultimately did not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. But that one who lived in a place and did not hear the gospel still had the testimony of all nature. He still had the testimony of his own conscience. He still had the blatant sin that he had committed against the one who had created him. And Christ is going to hold individuals accountable. 
We can't just sit idly by and expect that individuals are going to hit cruise control into heaven. God's given us a truth, my friends, as a part of the church, and we need to be about his business making that truth known. That's why we can celebrate the wool lines going and ultimately sharing his truth as they go in outreach. That's why we can celebrate our missionaries who are now serving in Puerto Rico, rebuilding roofs, but also proclaiming that there is a God who's inspired us to do this very thing. That's why I urge all of you to gird up your loins. Get ready for action because Christ is coming. And when he comes, we want to be found faithful. And so I ask you, are you ready for his coming? Ask yourself these questions. Have you been saved by Christ? Are your loins girded up? Are you clothed in his righteousness? Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so I say, come to Christ. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake is the one who will save it. Get ready. He's coming. You don't want to be ashamed of him when he comes. And so when Jesus moves in, I don't know about you, but I want to be ready to move with him. Secondly, are you serving Christ? I mean, why are individuals up at the second and the third hour of the night? Is it because it's comfortable? Because it's convenient? No, it's none of those things. It's because they know that they serve a master who's worthy of it. And so I say, get in motion. Be ready to serve Christ. Thirdly, I ask you, are you expecting Christ? Are your lamps lit? Are you casting away darkness? Who or what are you looking for tomorrow that will ultimately determine what you are living for today? Do you truly love the thought of Christ's appearing? Do your thoughts, your words, your actions, your checkbook, do these things indicate that you're truly looking for, longing for, and loving the appearing of the one who is coming? I heard about a gardener in a large estate in northern Italy who was conducting a a visitor. He was taking him through the property of this castle, these beautiful, well-groomed grounds. And the visitor had lunch with the gardener and his wife, and and he commended them for the beautiful way they kept these gardens. He asked, by the way, when was the last time the owner of this castle was here at this property? And the gardener said, well, it's been about 10 years ago. The visitor asked them, why do you keep the gardens in such an immaculate, lovely sort of shape? The gardener replied, because I'm expecting him to return. Oh, is he coming back soon then? This visitor asked. No, the gardener replied. I don't know when he's coming, but I'm expecting him today. And friends, let that be the mentality of all of us. Do you know when Christ is coming? No, no man knows the hour nor the day. Jesus, even in his incarnation, took on a limitation that he himself did not know the hour or the day. But take this to the bank, my friends. Jesus is coming. We don't know when he's coming, but we should be expecting him today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? And I just want to ask you before we pray, is this the testimony of your heart? Are you living in such a way that you truly are expecting Christ to come at any moment? Are you prepared for his coming? Have you girded up your loins? Have you given your life to Christ? Have you said, I'm ready to go because when you come, I'm going with you. My hope, my salvation, my eternity is in your hands as my Lord and Savior. 
that's your testimony, then, then rejoice, my friends, because there are great blessings awaiting you. But if that is not your testimony, then my friends, I would urge you, I would plead with you to gird up your loins and run to Christ. Free up yourself from the, anything that's holding you back and run to Him. He is the faithful Lord. He will grant to you riches beyond what anything is that you could imagine here on earth. So run to Him and find His grace. Be forgiven. His death is a death that was in your place. His resurrection is a promise of the hope that you can find in Him. And I promise you that if you will trust in the Lord Jesus, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so don't let this moment pass by without being prepared, being ready, making yourself ready for what He's called you to. Father, in these final moments as we evaluate our own hearts as we evaluate our own readiness oh lord i pray that you call to yourself those who you might ransom you might redeem you might win who you might make prepared for this great event that jesus is coming father we thank you for the hope that says this broken world is not all there is this calamity this this fallen state of things is not the eternal state these broken relationships we have now this these, these bodies which are prone to sin, Lord, we've got something greater to hope for because our Redeemer lives and He's coming again. And so, Father, help us to rejoice in this truth and to live in light of this truth. Father, I pray if there's any darkness that any of us need to be casting out, that You cause us, each and every one, to be ready on this day. Father, do what only You can do in these final moments as we pray to You now and seek Your face. In a time of evaluation of our own hearts, I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. And so what about you? Are you ready for His coming? Are you prepared for the Lord shows up in an instant, in a moment? If not, my friends, I call for you. Cast out the darkness. Keep your lamps lit. Gird up your loins. Come to Christ and find a hope that is eternal.